how does the individual organism try to adapt by controlling some parts of its environment? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like in my, I, I, as people know, I dislike culture. I hate culture. I never write about culture and I don't think it's important. Hate culture. No <laughs> more culture. Kill the culture oh, in you. Today is Gil. Hello. Will. Hey. And of course, Lily. Hi. Uh, so today we're going to be discussing Sigmund Freud. We've talked about addressing psychoanalysis on the podcast since the very beginning, but I've yet to do an episode on it. And after preparing to host this episode on Freud, I think I know why we kept, it kept getting deferred. Psychoanalysis is an entire complex field of inquiry and therapeutic practice. And none of us are scholars or even amateurs in this field. But its importance in the social and political thought of the 20th and 21st centuries, even apart from its manifold epistemic and practical merits, obliges our attention. Freudian psychoanalysis has exerted enormous influence on the history of left theorizing, from Frankfurt School Marxism to French existentialism and phenomenology, from Franz Fanon to contemporary philosophy of race, Uh, and through Jacques Lacan to the work of Louis Althusser, Alain Badiou, and the Slovenian circle, including our boy Slavoj Žižek uh, and Alenka Zupancic, among others. I just want to say, by the way, that we've got a couple more episodes in the works, uh, one on Lacan's Seminar 7, and uh, The Ethics of the Real by (laughs) Zupancic. Sorry, don't be this, brother. It's just like, y'all can't see Lily. She's like, we do? What? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I made the decision by fiat. Okay. <laughs> okay. We love a dictator. Listen, I, we all have plans. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. <laughs> it could be in years to come. Who knows? All right. In an essay on Freud's theory of instincts, Herbert Marcuse offers a simple, compelling justification for treating psychoanalysis as a central area of inquiry in social theory, which is the following. The psyche is a component of the social totality. That's how he puts it. It is both shaped by that totality and, to some extent, lots of arguments about the extent, it shapes that totality too. This, of course, means that no social totality can be adequately understood without understanding the psychic life of the subjects who practically determine it. It is for this reason that social theorists have so frequently turned to psychoanalysis to help explain facets of social behavior, of individual and collective desire that seem to elude other explanatory frameworks seeking to make the social totality intelligible. The book that will guide our discussion today, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, is a pivotal text in Freud's mature elaboration of the structure of the psychic apparatus and psychic life. It's a difficult text, but one which sees Freud either introduce or further develop some of his most important and well-known concepts, such as the death drive, the compulsion to repeat, as well as his famous analysis of the Fort Da game played by his grandson. Philosophers have been especially drawn to this text because, as Freud admits throughout it, he allows himself to indulge a more speculative line of thinking than his fidelity to the evidence of clinical experience would normally permit. 
For me, it offers as many astonishing insights as it does real head scratchers. So before discussing it together, I want to provide you all with just a basic account of what Freud's doing in this long essay. What Freud calls the pleasure principle is the tendency on the part of the psychic apparatus to minimize excitation. Somewhat counterintuitively, pleasure for Freud names a decrease of excitation, unpleasure, uh, an increase of the same. Freud disagrees with those who assert the dominance of the pleasure principle in psychic life. The most that can be said is that there is a, quote, strong tendency towards the pleasure principle, end quote. But this tendency exists in relation to other psychic and libidinal forces over which it does not dominate. The essay therefore seeks to go beyond the pleasure principle and to investigate these psychic and libidinal forces. One of these forces is the compulsion to repeat, or the repetition compulsion. As an example of this compulsion in the behavior of children, Freud analyzes a game he witnesses his grandson playing. Using a string and wooden reel, the child would throw the reel out of sight behind a curtained baby crib, uttering fort, German for gone, and then pull it back toward him while joyously uttering da, there. The meaning of this game of disappearance and controlled reappearance, Freud claims, is obvious. It is a response to the disagreeable experience of his mother's frequent departure from the home. In the game of Fort Da, the child seeks, seeks and recreates the painful experience of departure and return, with the crucial difference that he now senses himself active in relation to this experience, rather than merely passively enduring it. This active element is how pleasure is found in unpleasure. For Freud, this compulsion to repeat this drive to relive a painful experience presents itself in adults in the form of neuroses. He gives the example of war neuroses, in which soldiers return to scenes of trauma in their wish-fulfilling dreams, the example of people who pursue friendships that always end in betrayal as if the betrayal itself was their aim, of amorous relationships that always take the same disappointing route. The child playing Fort Da, the neurotic patients Freud treats, all point towards the operation in us of a drive that appears distinct from our vital sexual drive. This distinct drive is the famous death drive. So in opposition to other concepts uh, of our libido, particularly what he refers to as the monistic Jungian conception of libido, Freud proposes a dualistic conception. <laughs> yeah, thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> Lou Young. <laughs> no, yo, this is not a Young Stan podcast, right? Libido is divided into life drives and death drives, eros and thanatos. And his attempts to account for the origin of the death drive is when the text gets real speculative. While we should not read him as doing kind of baseless pontification, you know, he draws from biology and clinical experience in order to put forth a number of hypotheses that he himself admits do not carry the scientific weight he attributes to other facets of his theory. His central hypothesis is that organisms emerged at some point in history from inorganic matter and that they possess the inherent drive to return to that inorganic state. And hence his famous quote, the aim of all life is death. The speculative theory also includes an account of the development of the simplest unicellular organism, a vesicle, which over time Freud claims needed to develop a protective cortical layer 
so as not to be utterly destroyed by external forces, a shield against external uh, excitation. As a higher organism, humans are actually besieged on two fronts, stimuli from the external world, whose intensity our sense organs work to limit and diminish, as well as excitation from within, libidinal excitation, against which, Freud claims, the psyche has no comparable shield. So in the absence of a shield, our psyches have evolved complex mechanisms for binding that energy, that libidinal energy, to channel it, to educate it, to displace it, to make it quiescent. Whatever the faults or merits of the origin story, the psychic economy that it allows Freud to sketch provides social and political theorists, I think, with a vision of the subject that has as much or more explanatory power as like rational actor theories or accounts of (laughs) the economic subject of self-interest, and certainly more than monistic accounts of will to power or lust for domination. Many social and political theories look to some kind of account um, some some explanation for why it is that you know that the that we pursue uh, the things that we pursue, and I think psychoanalysis has an excellent uh, answer to to that question for all its potential faults, which we might discuss. So I've said quite a bit already, and I'll open it up to you all. How did you guys uh, fare with this text? I, I guess I'll just ask the um, the kind of the the question that you raise at the end, which is what does it mean for this to explain anything, let alone as much or more than other accounts of human behavior? Well, I think you like come at it negatively and say like, where are the explanatory frameworks, just like some of the ones I referred to, you know, where do they fall short? Like, what do they not help us to explain? Like, you know, things like why do people act against their own interest? Like, that's one thing that's difficult to explain, like what leads to uh, people both, not just economic interests, right, but in your personal self-interest in your life. Like, we all do incredibly damaging things to ourselves. I think maybe maybe the compulsion to repeat speaks more to me. Like, I can think of a number of ways in which <laughs> I find myself in the same situation and I just cannot believe that I managed to, through the ruse of my, you know, of my own ruse, place myself mm-hmm. back in this situation, I just think that there are there are manifold phenomena that are not captured. Now, I don't like look. I'm not an expert on psychoanalysis, and I don't. I couldn't say exactly how it is that psychoanalysis resolves problems in these, you know, explanatory problems in these domains. But I think it's not very difficult to point to a ton of phenomena that are hard to explain about how twisted our motivations, our lines of action, our practical lives are how circuitous our paths to the things that we supposedly want are. Uh, I, I think that that's where you need more than just, you know, some, you need more than like a rational actor theory or even like a theory of self-interest to understand like how it is that we, what drives us to do those things. Yeah. I mean, the way the, the, the way that, that I, I come at this. So first you asked like, you know, what our reactions were, you know, at a certain point, I think, you know, I said during our mailbox, you know, episode, I, I can be very credulous with, you know, certain texts and at a certain point, especially <laughs> when Freud is like, this is speculative. I'm like, you know what? Fuck. 
Let me just go with it. Let's go on. And you know what I what I thought was interesting here is that sometimes you know again you know more social theory is my bag and all of that, and I sometimes worry about a type of mythical psychoanalysis, say in the Afro pessimism register. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I took a step back and let myself go with it, one Freud was trying to give an explanation that in essence you know, you might think that psychoanalysis is simply about your mind, but no, he wants to talk about you know, what desires and forces our organic bodies, you know, experience, not just only within ourselves, but, you know, in the environment that we find ourselves. And so what I thought was really interesting here is sometimes, you know, when um, doing social theory, it can be easy to just assume we know what, like, you know, a subject is, you know, how subjects will evaluate things. And, you know, it can mm. sometimes, you know, tend towards assuming that there is, you know, a mm. relatively coherent subject, and then we can start to make predictions about what they will do, how they experience the world, etc. But, you know, what Freud seems to be doing is saying something like, you know, subjectivity is riven from within inside itself. That, you know, there isn't a single subject, you know, either rationally evaluating its choice nor completely determined by the environment that it is in, but that, you know, subjectivity is formed by the, you know, the difficult calibration between, you know, the forces inside of ourselves, the forces that, you know, I'll put it in my own language, that are driven towards activity and driven towards rest, and the constraints and impingements of the environment that we find ourselves in, which I think he calls the reality principle. Mm-hmm. And so what I was starting to think here is, you know, even if you don't accept the entire Freudian story, what at least he's, uh, he is, you know, pointing towards is, so what is this thing that we call a subject that we assume we understand its actions? Why do people do these very strange things? Like he does like go really far with the uh, repetition compulsion where he's even like, you know, we might be suspicious of someone who keeps like marrying someone and they keep dying <laughs> from an illness. Like what's going on? there and you know there of course there that 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 mom like what what the fuck is that? <laughs> but if we if we dial that back a little bit, it, it can allow you to say something like, instead of saying that people are simply weak-willed, what if there are problems that are irresolvable at the level of subjectivity and desire because, the, let me put it this way, it turns out our desires and what are, we want isn't unitary. That, you know, they often mm-hmm. conflict. Mm-hmm. And so it's at least trying to open that plane of investigation and not say that everything has to be resolved there. But what is this person in this environment and what type of person doesn't make them become? You know, psychoanalysis seems to be trying to put that back on the table. Yeah, I I know that we've talked about this the, between me and some of you before in various ways. I have I have a lot of difficulty with psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic concepts. Um I think my brain's shaped wrong to grasp it properly, and I have real difficulty thinking along with it. I'm just going to say, Loki, I don't think anybody doesn't have, I don't believe anybody that says they don't have difficulty with it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's a false projection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's subject matter, like, re- like inherently resists a certain modes of clarification. Right. So because I've got this, the weird rationalist brain that I've got, I'm going to try to push for clarification anyway. Um, Good. Yeah, we yeah. have to. So Get like, me and me and Gil will team up once again. Yeah, hell yeah, let's do this. The A team. <laughs> the A team. Oh, oh, <laughs> me and Owen. Me and Owen. The B team. B team. We team up the rationalists over here. <laughs> you notice how I assert the superiority of the conscious over the unconscious. Yeah, for sure. A hundo P. You got to. So yeah, if this is a, an explanatory model of some kind, it should be predictive in a certain way. 
So we've got this idea of these two different principles. Um, and maybe we could just like slow down and go back to our pleasure principle before we get to the death drive. You mentioned in your intro that it's something like uh, the pleasure principle that is a tendency towards like it's towards a zero state or like a like a zero intensity, like a constancy of excitation or or even its decrease. Right. I was reading something about this that like Freud was, you know, he gets a lot of gets a lot of shit for being pseudoscience or what have you. But like he's very, very invested in the debates and other scientific discourses in the day. I mean, this is to to Will's point, like part of what's fascinating about like I think it's chapters five and six in this book where he like goes off into the deep end of embryology and he's like making these like speculative claims, but it is pretty grounded in like, you know, the, the science of the day. And I was reading about the way in which he was influenced specifically by like developments in thermodynamics, where like systems have you know, a certain kind of constant uh, degree of energy. And then there's also a kind of entropic tendency towards towards dissolution, right? And the death drive seems to be a something that makes... Equilibrium, equilibrium and disequilibrium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like an equilibrium, disequilibrium, and, and entropy problem going on here. So can, I don't know, can anyone like help me out make sense of like, what do we mean in this context by pleasure principle? Like, why is it a tendency towards like neutralizing differences and returning to a zero state rather than because I think a kind of more intuitive way of understanding pleasure or pleasure principle would be like I want to maximize intensity of some way, in some way right like this is, I think how we kind of tend to spontaneously understand it right like I don't know mm-hmm. food or sex or joy is like an intense thing and you want to maximize mm-hmm. that that's not what the pleasure principle is for Freud so what's that what's that about so as Owen was talking when I was reading, I, I realized that whatever Freud means by pleasure, pres- pleasure principle is actually very different than how we often talk about pleasure, which is um, this state of excitement, the state of extreme stimulus. But you know, if Freud is right that you know the the organism um, only has a certain type of capacity mm-hmm. to um, be open to a certain intensity of stimuli, then I think what he's saying that actually what you know the organism fi- finds pleasure is you know, a state of constancy and predictability. And so strangely enough, pleasure would be the ability to control the amount of stimuli that is impinging upon one, and that actually there is you know, a type of, of, of pain in a, in a pleasure that overcomes the subject, leads them into ecstasy, which doesn't mean that there can't be something alluring about that mm-hmm. type of pain and loss of mm-hmm. control. And so what he seems to be talking about with the pleasure principle is you know, pleasure is a state of rest as a state of minimal disturbance. And yet the, the contradiction or the tension there is that that state of minimal disturbance starts to look frighteningly close to a state of death. Right. And mm-hmm. there is, you know, something in our organism that wants to resist that as well. You know, the the drive to reproduce or the drive to know that, that we are alive. So I, I take it what he's doing, and this seems to me be a rather banal point, is that we don't want to be overstimulated all the time. Sometimes um, any of you who's like an introvert, you can have a good time at a party, but there's a certain point where you're like, I just need to get the fuck home. <laughs> like, this is, this is not it for me. I need to be in bed as close to death as possible. <laughs> And, See, my issue know, is that's and, not me. I go to the end. <laughs> well, there's, you know, something has been malformed in your psyche. Clearly. Yeah, 100%. Um, no question. And, 
And so, you know, you know, just to like, you know, this is a long way of trying to answer Gil's questions. What I think he's trying to say about pleasure is, you know, a type of tranquility that the organism is striving for. But, you know, it, it can never go too far in that tranquility because that would be the abolition of its life. And so I'm, I'm trying to like say this in a rather like common sense way of like, I think we all have the experience of not wanting too much, mm -hmm. of wanting a state of your know, predictability, a state of, of your know, quiescence. I, I don't think that that is you know, completely far afield from general experience. Well, I was also going to say just on the question of like, you know, sense pleasure that you're referring to what we normally understand by sense pleasure. He says something really interesting about the function of the sense organs is that we normally think of the sense organs as faculties of receptivity. Like we think about their, you know, that they can take in all of this different stimuli and, you know, and data. But he says in actual fact, like one of the, one of the key, the important, perhaps the central job of, uh, yeah. of, of the sense organs is actually to limit the amount that we take in, right? right. To limit the amount of stimulation. And if we just, if we didn't have sense organs and we were just totally at the, like it was just a deluge, right? Of excitation from the external world, like we would, we certainly wouldn't feel it as pleasure. I mean, we'd probably just die, right? But you wouldn't, you, it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't feel very pleasurable, right? So actually what sense pleasure is, is inherently connected to limitation of excitation. Selection. Like, and yeah, filter. selection. Yeah, yeah, filtering. yeah fil a filtering. Yeah. Here's a, just a quick example. I'll just say this really quickly because this popped in my head. The first time I met Owen's daughter, it was me, my partner, and our friend. And you know, it was quite clear she wasn't used to being around a lot of people. Like me, I'm a fun ass time. Tell me why <laughs> this girl's crying the entire time of me just talking to her. Me just like being like, ooh, 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 ooh. like I'm thinking like that's what children want. Play. Here's stimulus. Da, da, da. Uh -huh. She's like, no. No, make it stop. I need to be brought into the quiet. And so you might think, well, children, 100%. they get bored. They want all this stimulus. But, you know, if, you know, if we go to like a, a baby who doesn't yet have language, hasn't been inducted into culture and our, our bodily practices of how to be with one another, this was complete nonsense, terror even. Mm -hmm. It was way too overwhelming. Mm. Yeah, it's the first five minutes with anybody she meets now, too. It's just way too overwhelming. I shouldn't. I should stop screaming at babies because I think that they they like intensity. But I guess, <laughs> but I guess I'm mistaken about this. So that's why babies always cry when they're around. Damn. Okay. Yeah. No, it's just starting to make sense. So I'm just gonna like reiterate Gil's question, which is just like, why not just a, a basic kind of utilitarianism in a, our kind of sexual or affective economy? Like, you know, I was just reading on utilitarianism for the upteenth time because I taught it recently. And um, I needed a refresh, hadn't really read it in a couple years. And, you know, sometimes, like, you know, I was reading the part on, on pleasures and pains and what they are, and I didn't find it that silly. I don't know if that's the definition of happiness, but it was certainly, like, <laughs> uh, not an entirely implausible way of talking about a negotiation between pleasure and pain in order to kind of control, have more controlled pleasures that we actually think are, are higher pleasures. So like in some sense, just basic processes of delayed gratification and learning, you know, a, achieving wisdom about superior versus inferior pleasures. Like this is the kind of thing that like, I don't know, philosophers have just been saying for a long time about pleasure. And I guess I'm I'm a little perplexed and forgive me for being like so 
maybe myopic about this. I'm perplexed about the mystery that he feels he's unfolding in this like inner psychic life. And I think it has to do with the insistence that we are not transparent to ourselves. So like what is going on in that internal economy of pleasure and pain is not something that we actually have control over. It's not like we cultivate virtue in the utilitarian sense or even in the virtue ethics, ethical sense. And like we kind of train ourselves to have better and more controlled pleasures. So like, I get that part of it is kind of like the dark web of your psyche is like what, and the fact that there is no linear time and the unconscious and, you know, it's not organized and it is just kind of like mysterious forces that we can only see symptoms of. Like, I get that that's part of the picture, but like when he's talking about the pleasure principle, like on the surface of it, based on what you can actually observe, I'm not ever really sure that like it's something different than a basic utilitarianism about pleasures and drives. Yeah, if I could, if can I can I like add to the question real quick? Can I just add to this because I like this question a lot because it seems like on the one hand, like the sort of way that he cashes it out as counterintuitive, as like you know returning to a constancy or a baseline, seems like it might be incompatible with utilitarianism, but also it might not. Right? It's mm-hmm. just this, he's like he's isolating the like origin of where that pleasure feeling comes from in a different movement than we tend to think. But then you might still pursue it in a maximalist, utilitarian, rational kind of way. But then I also wanted to to agree with you by asking us to think about like the Fort Dog game. Because in your introduction, Owen, I don't know if I agreed with or understand what's going on there. In the repetition of the Fort Dog game, you said something like, you know, in it, the child goes from being passive and in, into to active in relation to this thing by repeating it. But I don't think that that's how we find, a, as you put it, pleasure and unpleasure, right? That would just be another pleasure principle way of making sense of this, right? Like it's not about, like the, it seems to me like the the postulate of the death drive isn't reducible to, oh, sometimes you endure an unpleasure for the sake of greater pleasure later. That's just like Lillian said, that's just the utilitarian mm-hmm. calculus again, right? Like maybe mm-hmm. yeah. a more a more wise or virtuous utilitarian is someone who's like, oh, I'll give up X for Y later. But the death drive he posits for other reasons, right? He thinks that there are some sorts of psychic phenomena or social behaviors that don't even make sense on that model, right? And that's what I think needs to be understood. Yeah. So I think the important thing about the Fort Dog game, I'm sorry if I wasn't clear about this, uh, is that it's the experience of like playing Fort Da is returning to a situation that is unpleasant. So like we seek out situations that the, the child finds unpleasant, the experience of departure of, of, of his mother, right? And so it, like what the Fort Dog game is, is not a way of like maybe saying it's like pleasure and unpleasure is not precise enough because it's that the game is a way to like bind the excitation, the excessive energy, like energy that comes from that experience of disappointment. It doesn't make him like happy, right? But it's a way, it's a way to, to return to that same painful experience, but now not in a totally uncontrolled like flow of of painful excitation, but now in a cultured, like bound, like, mm. you know, experience of it. And that is to some extent more pleasing than just the actual raw experience of loss and departure 
but it's still the experience, but now in a, you know, now in a culture to build on like a formed like way, right. To, uh, of, of, of experiencing it. Well, I just want to say one more thing before we get to, is this uh, too far afield from what, from Lillian's original point, which I thought was really good. Uh, that it's important to remember that psychoanalysis isn't just a theoretical domain, right? That it's a therapeutic exercise. And so I think for someone like Freud, people come back from the war and they're explaining all these neuroses, right, from World War One, or all manner of other neuroses, sadistic tendencies, masochistic tendencies. I don't know from a therapeutic perspective if you'd find it very helpful just to like open up a utilitarian, uh, you know, utilitarian text and say, no, listen, you just got to get a little bit smarter about how you're... <laughs> about how you're pursuing, um, you know, your pleasures and your pains. I mean, he would look at you like you're, you know, like an absolute idiot. And he, maybe he doesn't have a better answer, right? Like a more coherent, intelligible answer. But I do think the critical point there in the therapeutic context is right. I mean, that these other different models, like go make yourself smarter or make yourself stronger or make better decisions. Like that's what a lot of psychotherapy does. The most damaging kind of like uh, psychotherapy, I think, does that, you know, mm -hmm. get stronger, master yourself. Adapt yourself to your society. Like that's ego psychology is all that shit. Think better thoughts. Okay, so you know there are a couple of things. There's so much to say, and I want to make sure we say it all because I'm I'm imagining listeners who know a little bit of psychoanalysis are going to worry that we don't get to it. So I'm just going to list like three things I think are, are are really important that I got from the Freud text. So with the utilitarian calculus bit, what I find is interesting there is the reason why Freud is not offering a type of let's put it um, an education of desire mm -hmm. is because this assumes a model of the subject where it is the only desires are the desires that the I, the ego, attributes to itself. And so that the only pleasures and pains are, you know, I like chocolate. I hate vanilla. But, you know, what's going on in Freud is that there are pleasures and pains that are not strictly attributable to the conscious I. This is, I maybe, you know, what's kind of frightening about what Freud is saying, which is, you know, there is, you know, when he's talking about drives, you know, the best way that I'll put it, and I, I don't know how much sense it will make, it feels pleasure. It feels pain. And so he's trying to designate that not everything that goes on inside of us happens in the realm of conscious, rational reflect, um, reflection. So what, what this leads you to is that things that I think are pleasurable, my organism, it, may actually find painful. And, and so that's the first thing I want to say is that what I think is different from the million utilitarianism is that there isn't an I who, through enough work, can finally be com in complete master of itself. There are desires and forces that you know, besiege the ego. I don't know if anyone has ever had the experience of, like, why am I drawn to this thing? I don't want to be drawn to it. My, always my example is, like, you know, when you're young and you're dating someone who all your friends are like, he's bad for you. Don't do it. And you're like, I know he is. Like, yo, he never calls me, and I know it, it sucks. But then when I get that text message, I'm like, fuck, let's go. And like, yeah, that, that's not rational. And so one might say is like, well, you know, look at you. You're 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 immature or something like that. So this goes to the second thing I want to say is, which is, you know, I, I'm playing the role of trying to stick for Freud, just being, you know, just like to, to push things a little bit, but. The second thing is that there is something deeply conservative in what, you know, in Freud's project here. Where he doesn't, this is not about liberation. This is not about, you know, finally desiring the right things. It seems to me for Freud, and this will maybe be the controversial thing I'll say for those who love psychoanalysis, is it's about adaption. 
You know, for Freud, you are an organism in an environment you cannot completely control. And it turns out what brings you pain is you're constantly trying to control these forces. You don't want mom to leave. You don't want X person to betray you again. And yet you're constantly drawn to it. And you think, I just need to change myself. And Freud is saying, what you need is to have some clarity about what it is you are. And so you know, there is an element of psychoanalysis I can understand people from the left worrying about, which is Freud does not lead you to the notion of changing the world or changing your environment. What he leads you to is how can you generate some state of equilibrium between who you think you are generated by culture and like I will say for our listeners at home, all of Freud's patients were bourgeois women and men. So yes, he could be doing a sort of a class analysis of the psyche of those types of men and women, but it isn't about overthrowing those roles. It is about you know coming to some sort of understanding so that you're not constantly tearing yourself apart about these strange desires that you think should not be there. At least mm-hmm. that's my kind of controversial thing. Yeah. Like Freud is thinking about how we're situated in environments, how they mold us, how we make sense of them. And the last thing I'll say that I think is interesting in psychoanalysis is in the United States, we're experiencing rising rates of crime. And so sometimes I think we know that people should not choose violence, that they should not harm themselves and others. How do we explain that they do that if we don't want to make recourse to the idea that they're dupes, that they're not very smart? Well, what Freud would say is that in violent environments, you'll get malformed subjectivity. You know, you will get people who are split between what they ought to desire and what, you know, pushes them forward, which isn't about saying they have no responsibility. It is to say something like, it turns out environments really matter in, you know, how subjectivity is formed. Mm. And he's, like, pointing that way. But I don't think, like, he'd have much to say about urban or rural violence for it to be like, I don't know, those are Americans, what can you say? <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Those, are just Ameri- those are just Americans. <laughs> <laughs> psychoanalysis can't help them. Culture isn't you know, restrained enough. And so, yeah, I just wanted to like, make that point that what's like, really interesting about the topology of mind here is that there is what we think of ourselves, but you know, it's clearly for Freud, what lives within us is something that we wouldn't necessarily attribute to ourselves, yet also does determine our reactions, our behaviors. Mm-hmm. And that's like really hard because we live in the culture where you're supposed to be like, if you're unhappy, think happier thoughts. Look on the bright side. You know, chew, eat healthier, exercise just, twice a day. Just thinking about the toxicity of positive thinking earlier. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was thinking, can you just let me live? Let, <laughs> let me, me be myself. Be I actually feel like for it to be like, yeah, positive thinking, that is really fucking toxic. That yeah. is in no way how you are constituted. And what is this drive for constant pleasure? No, 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 no. Sometimes you don't want all of that. and you, Your organism can't handle that. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I share a similar frustration with a lot of psychoanalytic theory when it is when it does seem to be so heavily oriented towards like alterations in subjectivity and not alterations in the world. Mm. But I, I will say one thing just quick about like the the therapeutic practice and what it's supposed to achieve, because you know I think it's it's clear that uh, at least to me, although it's probably going to be some people in the audience like, wait, that's not true. I, I don't know. I'm not an expert, but it seems to me that the aim of of psychoana- psychoanalysis as a therapeutic practice, like, isn't to like make you happy and to like fix you in that sense, right? To so just be like, oh, Nick, you're going to be happy now. It's to interrupt a cyclical set of repetition compulsions. Is one of its functions, at least. It's to interrupt and to alter the kind of trajectory of your existence and your psychic life by 
allowing you to be less captured by things that you yourself, by processes that you yourself can't really see in which you need an analyst to, to be able to see. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I just think it's important. It's not, it, it isn't toxic, but it's definitely not like toxic positivity or like you should be happy. It's just like, uh, I see that you're stuck. Like this is how you might be able to change. <laughs> well, he like gives a little like history of one of the interesting things about this text is there's a couple of places where he like also looks back over the development of psychoanalytic theory and practice and kind of gives like little historical accounts of how it's, how it's shaped and developed. And this is one of the things that he's like, he says, right. Initially, it's marked by this discovery of there being an unconscious at all. And so like the first practical efforts or therapeutic efforts are like, you know, talking to a patient, trying to like see as an analyst what their unconscious like desires, habits, or tendencies are. And just like telling, saying that to them. And he's like, that didn't work. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> you know, like that didn't work at all. And then, and then he, at a certain point he says like, you know, the, the next sort of step forward or one of the, the, the great steps forward in it as a clinical practice is the d- development of this idea of transference, where again, you have like a different function of, of repetition, right? Like there is now mm-hmm. an attempt to get the person being analyzed to repeat the traumatic experience, like sort of of their own, not in a way it can't be remembered. It can't be remembered exactly. This is part of like the the like repression dynamic, I guess that this is all about, right? Like there's something about an, a traumatic experience is such that like, it can't be remembered properly. It's like it, because it becomes like constitutive of like who you are as a subject, it's also excluded from your memory as a subject. So then like the point is to like encourage a kind of repetition of it where again, there's a greater degree of mastery. So uh, first of all, I want to know. If well, he says the goal is to right remember that, yeah. it, not to keep it. The problem with repetition right. is that you, you keep experiencing it again as if it yeah. were presently happening to you because you can't remember it properly. And the, and the therapeutic goal is to, is to remember it, the, the traumatic event, instead of reliving it all, the, all your life. Yeah, I, I, I think like, you know, the sort of Lacanian way of saying it is to, to integrate it into your symbolic so that it becomes mm-hmm. something that is you know, representable to you, sensible to you, which doesn't mean that you can make it so it never happened, but it's no longer just a, um, an, a domineering compulsion that you, know, uh, you unthinkingly continue to, to uh, reconstitute. No longer the organizing force of your psyche, of psychic life. I mean, so here's the question of what's going on with you know, what Freud is doing here. And this is a genuine question that, that I have, and maybe, Owen, you might be better served to answer this. Is It's hard to see what a politics of psychoanalysis could be. It seems as if, you know, at least with Freudian psychoanalysis, is really rooted in the clinical practice. So I can see, you know, uh, let me just like say what's on my mind. I don't know if I'd like to see a version of psychoanalysis where um, social organizing and unions are walking in with Freud and like, comrade, it seems like you have some resistances here. <laughs> oh, no. Might we work <laughs> through this? Like, I don't, I don't see that. Um, but, you know, it... it it, it seems to me that what you know, Freud... No cultural revolution for you. <laughs> yeah, 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 back to the office with you. No, no, no. Yeah, you're not ready for revolution. But I see that, you know, and maybe we'll read some of the people who tried to do left political appropriations of Freud is, you know, there was really important here is this notion of resistances. And so what some people try, try to, to do with Freud is to say something along the lines of why is it... Um, let me just speak abstractly. 
revolutionary consciousness isn't generating? What are the blockages? Why is it that you know, we find ourselves repeating and um, wedded to structures that actively harm us? Now, of course, we can say there are objective constraints, but that doesn't exp uh, explain why sometimes we experience these uh, structures that harm us as pleasurable as something that you know, we, we want, that as something that circumscribes our horizon of what possibilities are. And so one might say that what this could lead to is to make us maladapted to what we take to be a set in stone environment and to try to explain how it is we become quiescent in you know, environments that are actively toxic for us, that harm us, et cetera. And so to say that those resistances that we think are simply in the psyche, it turns out those resistances are objectively generated and you know, part and parcel to the environments in which we find ourselves. I'll just say, like, I think um, I don't have that much to add about like specific psychoanalytic concepts. I find a lot of them to be like very enigmatic. But like when I'm reading Freud, I do find something about them intuitive as, as well. I just want to like return to the question about what it explains because I, I hear what you're saying, Owen, that like the, res the response is like so many possible things, um, but that always seems like never true to me. Hmm. It seems like the speculative part of it is like that's the part of the program where we try to explain things and for the most part that's pretty difficult to, to do. And I'm not trying to knock it. It's just that I'm when, I'm when I ask what does it explain, I'm actually like more, uh, I'm just skeptical about scaling up some internal processes within the human psyche into any kind of explanation about society. Like it's not obvious to me that in aggregate human society is the kind of thing that the psyche is. And mostly what you're doing if you're explaining things in the psyche, like what you do in a therapeutic setting, whether it's like psychoanalytic or some other psychotherapy, it is a kind of explanation, but it's by nature not the type of explanation that is being given in the social sciences or that is trying to anticipate human behavior in that way. It just it strikes me as a disanalogy for the most part. And when I hear, like, you know, when I read feminist work or theorizing about race, that really, like, it always seems like a massive projection onto hmm. individuals, these kinds of, like, psychodynamic patterns that the theorist has found intuitive. And it feels like it's starting to read reality like a text, mm -hmm. like you would read your Absolutely. own life in yeah. the therapeutic setting. And if you buy that that's possible, then I, I understand why it's attractive. But I just, I just don't. And so there's this like sympathy I have toward thinking about individuals in this way. But I am, I'm deeply skeptical of like the scaling up mm -hmm. of these, of, of these problems, because there's kind of like a I'm positive there's like a logical fallacy for this, which is just that like, mm -hmm. if you think, like it feels like a non sequitur, you know, like, okay, so this seems like it's true about the individuals in the clinical setting, but then it, then it also must be true if we kind of seem to see similar things in aggregate that we can neither test nor measure nor 
Uh, that's yeah. like. You know, I yeah, I, I love that you said it that way. Uh, uh, I I'll just be really quick with this. So what is like really kind of shocking with psychoanalysis is I actually think we lose a psychoanalytic insight when we simply do just try to scale it up to society. So mm -hmm. let me also put my cards on the table here. I don't understand how a discourse like Afro-pessimism that leans so much on psychoanalysis, why is psychoanalysis explanatory once it loses any connection to the clinical setting? So say what you want about Freud and how speculative he was, but he was in the clinical setting. So what becomes a psychoanalysis once it's no longer actually grounded in this process Practice and you know Freud in other places he talks about that there is a relationship between theory and practice here. So once you just lose the practice, you just have theory. And I think even Freud would be like, "What are you, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing?" <laughs> and you know, then now you're just like you're going off the dome. But you know mm -hmm. what I think is interesting about the insight is that there's a type of short circuit here where it turns out you know what social science describes the complex environment is not completely analogous to how the individual organism responds to that environment. And so this, this is more of a speculative question. What's fascinating with what is happening with psychoanalysis is psychoanalysis also seems to be saying that there is a conservative tendency in the organism to um, resist or protect itself from the immense complexity of the environment it finds itself in. If that is true, then the organism can't be an explanation for the environment because that's the very thing it's trying to protect itself from. Mm. So it seems like the political question to me is, how do we think in, a, in our increasingly complex society how individuals can be engaged in the gargantuan process or project of changing something that is for any individual overwhelming. Now, the easy pat answer is, of course, collective action. But I think psychoanalysis is introducing this, you know, this difficulty of how one gets from A to C. And I'm, I'm designating B as that disanalogous place of the complexity of social society and the organism's mm -hmm. tendency to resist being overwhelmed with complexity, if I can, I'll just... Yeah, there, there is one part of Afro-pessimism that I have been, like, struck by, one use of psychoanalysis that, and I, I don't, I'm not, I haven't, you know, settled on what to make of it, but I do keep thinking about it, which is the claim that, like, with the oppression of black people and the, and the systematic violence against black people in the United States, that there is more at stake than maybe just political economy, and you can't understand the, like, um, I don't know how to put it, the, like, the fury with which violence is brought down on black people without seeing some libidinal investment in that violence, that, that there's a libidinal economy that extends beyond just, well, capital needs this, you know, it needs, you know, giving a just a purely kind of, I don't know, classically historical materialist explanation for like why mass incarceration exists and why there is police violence, like that there is some investment in that violence that goes beyond you know, that goes beyond just uh, an economic investment in that violence. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and I don't, I worry about going down that route and I don't go down that route because I, I worry about where it leads. I think it leads to obscurantism. I don't know how you can falsify or verify. Like, that's what I wanted to say to you, Lillian. Is I don't know how you falsify or verify observations like that. They spark my interest and I'm like, okay, well, how would we show that? How do we prove that that's at, at work there? And you're like, well, just look at Derek Chauvin's face or something. You know what I mean? Like you can't, I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, you yeah, know what I mean? Right. Does that make sense? <laughs> so, and maybe this is something for like, I don't know, maybe further, further inquiry. But when I hear you say that there just has to be something beyond that, my answer is, of course, there is like 
we, I'm very complicated. Like I know that I don't understand myself completely and I, and, and there are various like parts of my psyche that create compulsions and needs that I, to the best of my ability, try to accommodate with respect for others. But none of that, like, I think that the explanatory problem is not, the explanatory question isn't about denial of, like, it's, it sounds like from what you're saying that there's like a big impression that the concept of like excess makes. I don't mind excess that much. Like, it's not something that bothers me as a part of social explanation because I'm, I don't, like, I, th I think the non sequitur is like thinking that like, that excess means like something more than excess. Mm. Like obviously everything I do is in excess of the decisions I make in my career, but none of those excesses prevent me from making the decisions I make in my career for the most part. Or do they exercise any causal power? I guess would be a question. Well, they, they do, but like the point, like the problem of falsification is a, is the problem of like, you know, just over determination. It's, it's like, yeah, there, it has some causal power and my choice of partner and my choice of friends and my, the things I enjoy, the TV I watch, the food I like, the things I do for relief or for pleasure. Like it has tons of causal power in my life. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what are you trying to explain? And like, None of those things are going to explain why when I pop out a baby, I am suddenly confronted with like all of these decisions that regardless of all of those other complicated things about me, I can't change based on those complicated things about me. So there's this kind of like my, my point is that the the idea that the social whole is somehow a magnified version of the internal psyche and the kinds of pressures it then places on us, I think they're incongruous in some significant sense, which doesn't mean that there's nothing more mm -hmm. to explain for me. Like if you told me that the only things about me were like the homo economicus stuff, I'd be like, <laughs> fuck you. That's obviously not right. true about me. Yeah. yeah. Nor is it true about you or anyone else. So like, like there's just some slippages in the way, like what are you trying to explain? What kind of object are you talking about? What kind of scope does it have? And like normally when I read psychoanalytic stuff, those are exactly the questions that go unanswered. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like the excess and the mystery of it all becomes what is impressive about the theory as opposed to its predicative I power agree. or something. I agree with that actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it has a real seductive power because of that. Yeah. I mean, that's why I brought mm -hmm. up like your what happens when it's completely unlinked from clinical practice. Mm -hmm. Because when it's completely unlinked from clinical practice, you lose the question of scope. That's great. I think that like, well, one of the things that strikes me here is Freud himself is always talking about like organisms and the relationship between organ organism and inorganic life, the inorganic nature. And like, I think about this a lot, coming at this from a completely different angle, like uh, Matheron, who I translate on Spinoza. Spinoza doesn't seem to think there's any real difference in kind between, for instance, uh, an individual and like a, a, an organization that they belong to, right? These are both things with a certain degree of individuality that have a sort of striving of their own of their own nature. And they pursue whatever it is. I think Freud is someone for whom like that is a bananas thought, right? And like there's something specific to like the individuality of an organism, right? This is why we get all that like weird discussion about like forming a cortical layer, protective shell. You've got like a nervous system, and like. A collective organization, a social group, doesn't have that, 
you know, it develops defense mechanisms, but they look really different because they're not like a nervous system's attempt to safeguard the individuality of an organism. Mm -hmm. So like this scaling up problem that Lillian's pointing to, like, I think is internal to Freud's own methodology, right? He himself, I think, would be very worried about maybe, you know, maybe at a later date we can look at like the group psychology essay because it doesn't, gonna mention, yeah. it doesn't have the same, it doesn't mm -hmm. have the same logic at all. And I think you're right that like there's this like slippage and a lot of like later... Um, well, he says in the group psychology that individual psychology is always group psychology and group psychology is always individual psychology. And I, right. I, I yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's I right. Know well, well enough to understand exactly how that works, but he does. It is something that he claims. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the other thing is like this, this also isn't to say that these things are uh, like totally disarticulated or irrelevant to one another. Right. Like the fact that like so like if if my individual psychology as an organism is going to have these like weird sort of mechanisms of like, I don't know, bound and unbound cathexis or like, you know, I've got a certain amount of psychic energy that I can only move around. And then if I get it hit with a trauma over here, I'm going to like lose some <laughs> of the other important functions that my my mind is doing to try to like react to that. Yeah. Like, yeah. OK, that if that's true, cool. And this might change the sort of story or picture that we get about what happens when people like that get together, which isn't the same as saying that like that collective organism or collective organization is going to have the same sort of logic at work. Right. Mm -hmm. So like the scale up problem is interesting. And I think if I could like toss this out to you guys as a question, one way of like asking how to think through this is something like he uses the language of economy quite a bit in these texts. Yeah. And I wondered if you all had ideas about what the relationship is between psychic economy and political economy. Like, is this more than just an analogy or like what's going what's going on here? Yeah. All right. I'm going to say the thing like I, I, I almost forgot. And it's the thing that I would hate if I didn't get to say. I think that there's actually a very real disanalogy between political economy and psychic economy, even for Freud. So here is my interpretation of Freud. And so Freudians can get at me. Let's go. Freudian psychoanalysis is intrinsically conservative. I do not mean, what I do not mean is that Freud thinks something like subjugation of women is great, or Freud thinks that black people aren't human. I, I don't know, maybe Freud thought those individual things. That's not what I mean. What I mean is something like this. What seems to be um, a central point in Freudian psychoanalysis is that there actually are real limits uh, to the capacity for the individual organism to change and adapt. In other words, what I mean is I do not think Freud thinks that we can just become anything whatsoever. Why I think that there's a disanalogy. What you know, Freud is maybe seeing at a, at a particular moment in, in shifts in global economy and in, in capitalism, et cetera, is that it turns out political economy, so society, whatever, has an, a greater capacity for transformation and change than the individual can keep up with. So let me just try to say this as clearly as possible. In other words, Objective processes like economy, et cetera, do not have the same problem of having to constrain their desires or conserve their nervous system as we as individuals have. And mm. so what you have is an increasing nice. disanalogy between the individual and their libidinal economy that does have very real limits of what it can adapt to and what turns out to be a social totality that doesn't have those same <laughs> limits. And what mm. you would need to explain is how human action remains possible, you know, in a sort of a, an economic process that's continually exceeding what that individual can adapt to. And one name we could possibly give this is alienation. And so the reason why I say there's something intrinsically conservative is that there is a pessimism for your psychoanalysis. If you're a utopian, you think, 
well, we just need to change all society and then we'll be different people, Freudian psychoanalysis will come in and mm -hmm. say something along the lines of there are actually limits to how much you can just change an organism right. given its environment. Organisms yeah. are destroyed by their environments all the time. Yeah. They are he dissolved. says that in Civilization is Discontent. You know, Habermas wrote about this in like 73 before Legitimation Crisis, the earliest essay, and maybe it is in Legitimation Crisis, I just forgot, but... Um, an early essay on what does crisis mean today, like in advanced capitalism at that time, one of his fault lines of crisis tendencies is the increasing inability of personality structures mm. to adapt to increasing complexity of system structures. The one, you know, like, a, and, and he doesn't call it alienation, but I think that that's sort of the idea. So I think, and he also had, had more affinity for psychoanalysis like the early Habermas was like more working with that explicitly. So I, I think that that alienation problem is, is something that like hasn't been pursued that much and that is kind of a, a interesting tack to take. So like how does like the more, maybe the more relevant question is like how does the individual organism try to adapt by controlling some parts of its environment? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like in my, I, I as people know, I dislike culture. I hate culture. I never write about culture, and I don't think it's important. Hate culture. <laughs> no more culture. Kill the culture oh, in you. However, I thought Stuart Hall culture. resolved this for us. Yeah. Right. Just so you know, I, d I think it's unimportant, and um, <laughs> if you are preoccupied with it, you are missing the boat. Oh, but um, I wrote an article that will come out next year in Hypatia called uh, Marx Maltus and the Moral Economy of Reproduction. And it is like some of my more speculative cultural stuff, but it's in the terrain of just like more straightforwardly how people like respond to system crises in terms of forming ideas about like who is responsible for them, namely women, anxieties about fertility and family form and, and so on. And I think there is something to say about like discharging one's lack of ability to control these changes in phenomena, and this can create real social effects. So there is something to explain, like reactionary conservative movements and so on and so forth. But like that just never quite scales up to the, like the reason people are insecure about the family form is like not just because of those in that problem of the personality structure or the drives. It's like capitalism has changed and the, the organism is dealing with it in really complicated yeah. ways. So like, yeah. I guess, I don't know, I'm just so, like kind of supporting what Will is saying, that there is a really interesting thing to talk about. It's just not to me like a congruous set of social causes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think that if we, if we think about like Fanon's use of psychoanalysis, right? Like Fanon, Fanon looked at the effects of colonialism and basically the kind of like psychic mutilation, right? That that is wrought by something like colonialism. But he was like a practitioner of psychoanalytic therapy. And I don't think, or I can't point to, I mean, maybe some of you guys know Fanon better than I do, point to somewhere where like you could see something like psychoanalytic therapy being scaled up and writ large to like, okay, everybody that was previously colonized. Like, I mean, there is an extent to which, and this is I'm more sympathetic with that like practical changes, like political changes, revolutionary changes, anti-colonial struggle, will do a lot of the the like therapeutic work in a certain way uh, that needs to be done. But then again, I don't know, then you're very far away from just like what at least Freud understands by like psychoanalytic therapy, like an, an analyst and an analysand mm -hmm. in a specific situation with transference and all of that. Like 
this is where I don't, I totally agree with the scaling up problem. Like I see when I say explanatory, like salience, I see that like you can't, it's important to be able to understand like psychic effects of something like colonialism. But I don't see, I don't think you can scale up the therapeutic part of it is how I would put it, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think you, in order to understand like neuroses in a given society, you have to understand the social, economic, political conditions that are partly responsible for generating those neuroses. Um, and, you know, those, patholo- those pathologies, right? Which, you know, if clearly if you look at the states, I mean, there's no shortage of pathology, like individual and social what? pathology. But the therapeutic part of an, uh, of analysis, before we started, I completely agree. Before uh, yeah. we started recording, I, by the way, Lillian was talking about the American need to kill. <laughs> like, yeah, the American yeah. need to just kill. Yeah, yeah. There are social pathologies. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah. healthy people. And, and, I, and I will concede there are some things that just require some uh, pathologizing for us to get our heads wrapped around it. Like there's no... There's no um, I, the mass mass death, yeah. just regularly and for fun, is just something I don't. <laughs> yeah, so but I so I yeah. I completely around, agree yeah. though that whatever a, a kind of like psychoanalytically informed response to that would be, so the scaling up and making psychoanal- right, right. psychoanalysis as like a therapeutic process political has never really made sense to me, and I don't I don't know that mm-hmm. it can make sense, and so mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's helpful to, for me to clarify what I think is important in the social political register and where it's actually perilous if you take it there. So here's another thing that like, I it, here's an interesting question to me. So like take the phenomena of mass shootings. There is a sense in which you can develop a structural explanation of the conditions in which this occurs. But this is undoubtedly like an excess of violence like you were talking about before. To me, if you were gonna develop a psychoanalytic explanation, you would have to just be awfully careful in exactly how localized and circumscribed that explanation is. Because mm-hmm. I think that's the pro- like the issue with the conservative nature of the therapeutic setting. It's like if you actually want to be careful, you can't speculate that wildly and in general because not all societies are en- enacting these acts of mass death and massacre on one another. Like actually that's a special problem mm-hmm. that Americans mm-hmm. have in a way. So like the only thing you could do is say like, well, every culture has some way of just murdering each other. So this is kind of typical. Rene Girard has entered the chat. <laughs> My man says, like, there's got to be a scapegoat. Uh, sorry for the Girard I mean, fans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe, right? But like, there's a reason that, we, that we're like, okay, well, that's not explaining anything. Right. That's an mm-hmm. awfully pessimistic view of human nature. So if you actually wanted to try to get at what is it, you know, what are the excitations and problems and pathologies that are leading to this, you would just have to be awfully constrained in like what you are trying to to say about the psychological profile and so on. I just want to quickly follow up on that because, you know, this is my last ditch effort to, to get someone like Gil on board. What if we say something like psychoanalysis is the site that registers effects, but you know, it, you know, psychoanalysis goes wrong when we think that it is actually an analysis of causes. And so I could see that what could be productive about psychoanalysis is you are you're looking at the effects that the environment can have on subjectivity, but you are not saying something like, you know, the pathologies of individual subjectivities what explains, you know, a social arrangement of affairs. And so it can be important nice, to to, yeah. to understand the effects of particular patholog- pathological environments, but you shouldn't get it twisted and think, well, the pathological environment is due 
to some, you know, the distortion mm -hmm. of, of individual subjectivity. And just two other quick things, because, you know, Owen brought up Fanon, I just wanted to, like, do, do a little teaser for the audience. One, Fanon did come to this insight. This is partially why he resigned from the psychiatric hospital in mm. Algeria, where he realized, when I'm trying to heal these people, but then I just send them back to, you know, <laughs> a completely violent conditions. fucked up environment. Yeah. Yeah. Why would I expect there to be any change? This is clearly not going to be the site of social transformation. And the other quick thing, um, and maybe I, I kind of misunderstood what you said, Owen, but I actually think... Fanon did not think that revolution substituted for psychological healing. In some ways, he thought it was necessary, but he also thought that you know, the havoc it wreaks on, on the environment, especially violence, is going to register other distortive effects and subjectivity, which is why Wretched of the Earth ends with this profile of these you know, destroyed individuals who are repeating this violence. And so I think for Fanon, mm -hmm. there's still this constant disanalogy between the political steps necessary and the effects on personality structure. And and, you know, I just wanted to say yeah. that because I think some ways of reading Fanon are reading him as, you know, a psychoanalytic revolutionary. And I think that misses the, the I didn't the mean to, I mean, didn't mean to suggest that. Yeah. yeah. I meant to more insist that there was a break between the revolutionary part of him and the, yeah. Let me just say yeah. real fast in response to what Will was saying about trying to get me on board last time. Like the, I, I will defend Freud in, at least in as much as like there is a certain sort of image of scientific knowledge production that becomes dominant throughout the 20th century, which is like, sorry, sorry to the, the, the Liam crew, like positivist in a kind of, which I mean in a derogatory way, which is like positive derogatory, positive parentheses derogatory, where it's like the only business of scientific inquiry is just cataloging facts and looking for statistical correlations. Freud that thinks that that's not adequate. He thinks that if you know you want to do a science of the psyche, if you want to do psychology, that like it's just not enough just to like compile lists of things. You need to have this speculative moment. You need to have this moment where you you posit something, where you're trying to go beyond the phenomena to develop something that can attempt to unify and synthesize these facts. Which is why he doesn't just say like people are having weird dreams. He's like, there's a, there is a repetition compulsion, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's a different step. And like, you know, better or worse, he's trying to bring this speculative moment to bear in the context of trying to make sense of complicated and seemingly irrational and apparently unsystematic psychic phenomena. And I think that this is, you know, why you can call it unscientific and say it's not falsifiable. But on the other hand, he is trying to develop something like, he's trying to figure out what sorts of principles would be necessary to unify and synthesize these, these disparate phenomena, which I think is an important, an important move. Well, I will say just one last thing on that point is that there, there isn't a way in which psychoanalysis does seek after causes, but maybe it's just like a truncated part of the causal chain. It doesn't go further enough back into social and historical causes because the way that psychoanalysts like to differentiate what they do from like other forms of therapy is that they think other forms of therapy are just like, you know, all they do is try to like treat, treat symptoms. Like they just like, listen, here's how you can think better. Here's how you can push those bad thoughts out of your head or whatever. And they think they're saying, no, no, I can tell you why you're having this bad thought all the time. I can, let's go to the cause. Like let's go to the actual root mm. um, and, and address that. But I think your point still stands because in order to actually understand the cause, you'd have to go further out than just the subject's psyche. You have to understand social causes, historical causes, 
all of those kinds of things. And there, I don't think, like, I don't really think that psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis is like maybe that helpful for doing that. That's why you got to read Antiedipus. That's what they're doing in that book. Oh, <laughs> the, I knew, I, knew I was waiting. I was, I was surprised it didn't come up earlier. I forgot your whole original, like your origin story is like fuck psychoanalysis. Like that was your first. <laughs> no, you know, that's, not, was that's your, not what the book says. The book doesn't say fuck psychoanalysis. It says if you want to get to causes, you got to take social, historical, political conditions into account. I, no, that's I know. I, and actually, I do love that. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that does it for us today. Uh, new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Christian, Jake Webb, Katie Nemkovich, Chris Nine, James Waite. Redline, Kara Whitlock. Shout out to Redline, by the way. I hope that's a Chicago reference. <laughs> Valentin Wiesner, uh, Benjamin West, Lucas G, Ian Edwards, Ruben Lopez, Malcolm Hamilton, Dylan Carlson, A, Holly B, Oscar Heath, Alan Rager, Max Brugach, Ryan Baker. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. Uh, you can also buy some What's Left of Philosophy merch from the store linked on our website. Follow us on Twitter, at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.